Stop. Listen. Focus. Look at what you've been doing to manage your patients and their pain. Opioids, a 1 to 10 pain scale, patient satisfaction, an opioid epidemic, an overdose epidemic, a medical-driven calamity. But starting now, we are going to do things differently. We are leaning into pain control, the science, the evidence, the art of addressing pain more effectively at the bedside. We are having real conversations. We are going multimodal. We are owning regional analgesia. We are evolving the way we practice. This is the Advanced Analgesia Podcast. Our mission is better, safer, definitive analgesia in the emergency department. Join us. The revolution is just getting started. Welcome to today's episode of the Advanced Analgesia in the ED podcast. We're joined today with Dr. Donald Stater, founder of Advanced Analgesia, to discuss some cases, some common ED presentations where pain management can be a bit challenging. Thanks for being here, Don. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's dive into some cases. I'll make a few up. A 15-year-old boy presents. He's just been to hockey practice. He's got an ankle injury. He looks a little miserable. No past medical history. He's, you know, cringing a little bit when he's walking. But when he's sitting there, you walk in. He's on his phone. He's making a TikTok. He looks fine. He gives you a little bit of his attention, but not much. But his mom is clearly concerned about her baby. She confides to you that he has, quote, a really high pain tolerance and that he's going to need something for the pain so he can function at school tomorrow. What do you do with this family? So, so first of all, it sounds like the patient has an ankle sprain, right? They've been able to walk on it. You know, you're of course going to examine the ankle. You can apply auto ankle rules if you want, or you can x-ray it to figure out if he's got a fracture or not. And then you can start the conversation though with the parents. It's like, oh, wow. So, you know, one, I'm thankful that he has a high pain tolerance. That's going to serve him very well in life. Two, let's get an x-ray. Let's find out if there's a broken bone. And then while we wait for that, we're going to go ahead and we're going to give your son a good dose of Tylenol, a good dose of ibuprofen. And if there's something that's broken in there, I'm going to come back and we're just going to numb up that fracture so that he has the best pain control possible. That sounds good. Mom is still concerned, though, about how he's going to function and how she's going to, you know, all well and good with you in the ED. But when they get home and he's in real pain, she doesn't think that Tylenol and Motrin are going to cut it. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, even for fractures, it's been shown that Tylenol and Motrin are more effective than Percocet. And I'm glad that you talk about function because one of the things we don't want to do is default to something like an opioid because that's going to make him groggy at school, might make him nauseous. And if your son drives himself to school, it will frankly just make him dangerous to drive. So I'm pretty confident that we can get to good pain control for your son without exposing him to the risk of maybe a dangerous medication. And for that, really, it's Tylenol, Motrin, a numbing agent like lidocaine, uh, and then some time. Because the good thing is, since your son is tough, and I see that he's a hockey player, right? He's going to be able to tolerate this injury, heal up from it great. And really, if it's what I think it is, an ankle sprain, he's going to be back to his normal self in around a week. The other thing that I tell the mom is, you know, I, I dive a little more into an expectation. What would you like? What do you think would be good for your son? What would you like it to be? And if it's, I want him to be in no pain, then I'd say, I could totally understand that. You're being a great mother. 
right? And, and again, you're elevating the person before you give them some education. I say you're being a great mother. But in the cases like this, where your son has possibly a bad ankle sprain, we found that the best treatment is what we've just talked about and time. And we don't want him to feel no pain because then he'll try to walk on it too early. And if he walks on it too early, he's going to re-injure it. And he's not going to be as good to play hockey, to run around in school and do all those other things. So we actually want him to be able to sense some of that pain so it helps guide him so he doesn't push his healing too fast. Right? And all those are different concepts you're, you're giving at the bedside. To try to help allay the mother's fear, you never want to kind of de- degrade into, well, your son doesn't need that, right? There's ways that you can just supremely piss people off uh, when it comes to minor injuries that you don't think need a narcotic and you sense that the patient's kind of fishing for one. There's judo you perform so that the patient at the end of the day says, yeah, that sounds good. Little Johnny can definitely tolerate Tylenol Motrin and a lidocaine patch for his ankle sprain. Any other tools you have? Would you ever use lidocaine patches or topical NSAIDs for sprains like this? Yeah, I love those those agents, and especially in physiologically fragile people. If this was an 80-year-old who had an ankle injury and had kidney disease, Voltaren cream is your best friend, and it's now over-the-counter. Or lidocaine patches are your best friend. Or doing an injection. I know, before, to kind of kick things off. If uh, this patient had, let's say, an ankle fracture and they had broken their distal fibula and they were still able to walk on it, one of the other things I would offer this family is the ability to inject it with a long-acting agent like bupivacaine to see if I can get that patient a good night of rest before they start feeling it. And then I'd also counsel them on, you know, what they're going to take at home. Terrific. So education, scheduled over-the-counter meds, and just reassurance. Yeah. Communication. And, and for us as emergency docs, there was a study that was published, I think now it's three or four years ago, that showed that we were still giving a lot of ankle sprain patients opioids. And that's just dumb, right? That's really, really dumb. Uh, we should not be giving 40% of people with ankle sprains opioids, especially kids. Thank you. Let's try another case here. A 52-year-old male presents to you with a periapical abscess. He has no housing. He has no dental insurance. He appears intoxicated and reports daily heavy alcohol use. How do you manage this man who is in evident pain? Yeah. So first of all, these are our people, right? Where we work in the ER in part because we like serving underserved patients. And this is a very common patient presentation, right? Where people start having pain and start trying to drink their pain away. And when that doesn't work, they show up in the emergency department. And what I'd say was good for this gentleman is I can provide pretty definitive pain control for him just by doing a dental injection for him. And then after I inject and numb him up, I can actually drain his abscess and put him on antibiotics. And over the course of a few days, he's going to get better. And as he sobers up in the emergency department afterwards, I can give him a turkey sandwich, which is, you know, one of the strongest tools we have to show patients we care about them. <laughs> uh, so, so, so we can give this guy really great pain control. I had not thought of the turkey sandwich as a key component of your toolkit. But... It's a key for multimodal analgesia. Uh-huh. Every ER doc will tell you the power of the turkey. Aha. Uh-huh. And turkey, not egg salad, not chicken. For some reason, I feel like every... It's the tryptophan. Yeah, the tryptophan. It's the tryptophan. (laughs) And I know we're getting a little off topic, but alcohol use disorder, you do more for him, I, I hope. For sure. And this is one of the missed opportunities that we have in the emergency department, and hopefully we start to fix, is all these use disorders, alcohol being first and foremost. We should try to get this patient into treatment. There's effective treatments, uh, be them abstinence-based, like AA, or be them medication-centered, such as naltrexone. And then if he's a gentleman who deals with alcohol withdrawal whenever he stops drinking, you know, ASAM came out with their new alcohol withdrawal guidelines, which are very useful and really rely on non 
non-benzodiazepine agents to help control withdrawal. So there's a lot we can, again, offer this gentleman. And while it's a tough disorder, one thing I think we're guilty of in emergency department is hopelessness for these patients. And I'd say, if you don't have hope for these patients, then the situation truly is hopeless. The way we get people into recovery is we are purveyors of science and hope to them. And we see we see them for not their disorder, but for what their life could be once we treat it. And, and we so many times can make a difference in patients' lives if we adopt that approach. You, There are certainly some dental conditions where you can provide definitive care, but what about for a complex dental pathology that you you need a dentist to perform definitive care? What does that bridging the pain control to a, an appointment look like? To me, it looks like in the ED, definitive pain control for the next 8 to 12 hours utilizing a long-acting anesthetic, be it bupivacaine or bupivacaine, bupivacaine being much more likely in this case. The other thing that you should know about, about tooth pain is you have options. Oftentimes, this responds to Tylenol and Motrin um, just as well as it would to you giving them a Percocet. So I do not give opioids for tooth pain. The, the last thing that are additional things you can apply, which are actually in the dental literature, which are somewhat interesting, is you can give patients small doses of Decadron for, for inflammatory type tooth pain. You can give them caffeine in addition to the Tylenol and Motrin. That's been shown to have an augmentary effect. So you can go multimodal. And then my, my last thing, which I love to do with all types of tooth pain, is I send them home with viscous lidocaine. I tell them, hey, if your tooth hurts right there, soak this in viscous lidocaine, put that cotton ball right on that nerve root or right in the gum where that where that nerve is running, and you're going to get some pain relief. And it gives them something to do too, right? They're always putting in, you know, I jokingly call them lidocaine dips, where, you know, they're just stuffing their gum with, <laughs> with a thing or two of lidocaine, and it's pretty effective. Terrific. Thank you. Let's do another one. A patient with a long history of medically unexplained chronic abdominal pain, lumbar pain, joint pain, pain all over, presents with a really debilitating exacerbation of her typical pain. She goes into a lengthy description of how her numerical pain rating score has fluctuated 7 over 10 last night, 9 over 10 now, went down to a 6.5, you know, very focused on her pain and very focused on this pain. She tells you flat out that this is common for her and Dilaudid generally takes care of it. Uh, And her medical record confirms she's been to your ER at least six times in the past few years. Very similar presentation, and that's the treatment she's received, and according to her, it's effective. At home, she's taking OxyContin, 80 milligrams twice a day, Clonopin, and Xanax PRN. What do you do with this complex patient? So this is one of the patients that ER docs have the most frustration with. Chronic pain patients who are on long-term opioids. And, and here's what I'd say, is this patient is not gonna get an opioid for me. And the reason why is because opioids are gonna help us win the battle, but help the patient lose the war, right? Plus it's gonna set up unfair expectations that my colleagues will have to deal with when the patient might come back in a day or two. And plus physiologically and, and from a pain perspective, it's just not the right way to deal with a chronic pain exacerbation. Now in advanced analgesia, we teach chronic and acute pain are very different entities. Right? Chronic pain is really a problem of central sensitization and psychologic drivers. Right? So, so really, there's no longer end organ damage that's occurring at the place that the patient is complaining of chronic pain, be it abdominal or, or you know, back pain, etc. There's no longer your body telling you, hey, this is damaged. It's the brain has basically got into it that, hey, there's an injury there. It's in this recurrent cycle, and there's a central sensitization that happens with chronic pain. For that central sensitization one of the most effective treatments we have is ketamine, 
right? Ketamine is really great for chronic pain, whether that be chronic pain from this patient or from chronic pain that, that's the result of cancer or something else. So, so ketamine is a, a potential option. The other components that I love to use in these patients, if I don't want to jump to something that itself can be considered a narcotic, are antipsychotics. And there's actually pretty rich literature that say antipsychotics work for this type of pain. If the pain is neuropathic in nature, I will often add neuropathic agents, be it IV lidocaine, which works, you know, in my experience, has worked with some chronic pain conditions. Also, I'd sometimes add gabapentin or Lyrica if they're not already on them. But, but my, my two drugs that I lean on the most are antipsychotics for these patients and ketamine. The last thing, if you want to go really multimodal, is you can include some magnesium. Both of those are NMDA receptor antagonists. So both of those have some, some role to play in central sensitization. So there's tools, right? You don't have to just jump to opioid. You can just convince the patient that, hey, let's treat this with these agents. And, and I'll tell you what, I got these patients usually turned around pretty well without ever needing to, to get into a fight with them about getting dilaudid. Now, also what I'd say is it's about setting expectations. When they come in and they say, you guys have given me Dilaudid every time I've come in. You know, why aren't you giving me the Dilaudid? What makes you such a bad doctor, an evil doctor, a person who doesn't care about me? And I'll say, hey, listen, I do care. But at the same time here in Colorado, and, and hopefully soon nationally, we have guidelines that say this is not how we treat chronic pain. And in fact, by treating you with Dilaudid, you might feel better tonight, but in the long term, I'm going to be doing you harm. And, and I try to talk with the patients about further hypersensitization or opioid-induced hyperesthesia. Now, finally, you know, while these patients get angry, et cetera, I always try to maintain a therapeutic relationship and a compassionate bedside manner, even though they're, I, they're angry that they're in pain right? Chronic pain is a terrible condition. I don't need to compound it with the patient thinking I don't care about them as a person or listen to their pain. I oftentimes just say, hey, in my experience, we could go down that dilaudid road, but this usually works better. And if you trust me, I think we can get you there, you know, without, without needing to resort to something like that that's as dangerous. Patients like this, I think, often come in prime to think that they're not going to be believed, that you're doubting the veracity of what they're complaining of. And uh, I assume that's part of your discussion is I, I believe you're in pain and I am thinking about your pain and what kind of pain it is. Yeah, that's exactly it. When I start talking and shifting how the patient approaches their pain control, I really want to tell them that I care about them, that chronic pain is a terrible condition and that I am there to help them out. But how we help them has to be based in science, not based on what's easy. And it's and I often say that it's very easy for me to go out and order a thing of Dilaudid for you. It's not the right thing for your health. It's not the right thing to do for the type of pain that you have. Have you ever had olanzapine, ketamine, haloperidol, IV lidocaine? And in combination, I'll add those to other agents. I can usually get patients feeling pretty comfortable and then get them back out again. And uh, just a plug for naloxone, you've got a patient here who's on a lot of Oxycontin and a benzo, two benzos. I would think you ask, do yeah. they have some Narcon nasal spray at home? For sure. That's, that's exactly the right patient to, in your screening, you know, say, hey, you know, you're on a lot of Oxycontin. Do you have that at home? Because you're right, it's life-saving, right? And if they have family members with them, usually the family member is really excited that you're bringing this up. Especially now that we have an opioid epidemic, they sometimes are, are themselves cautious or aware that the medications that their loved one is on long-term might not be the safest medications for their overall health. And, and lastly, if that patient has kids or a dog, I'll oftentimes frame it uh, in concern for other people in the household. Um, you know, I, I, do you have Narcan at home? No. So I, I would think 
that you should have it. Because if your teenager ever gets into your medications or your toddler or your grandson, Fido or Fluffy, whatever the dog's <laughs> called, they could die. And I want you to have the tool available to reverse an overdose and save a life if, God forbid, that were to ever happen. I'm pretty famous for doing this in my practice, where if I have someone like this and they bounce back because the night before they got an opioid and didn't follow the guidelines our emergency department has set, I'll email my partner and I'll say, hey, listen, I just saw Miss Smith. You treated her yesterday with Dilaudid for chronic pain. She bounced back today. This made for a very difficult patient interaction with her. Is there a reason why you didn't try multimodal agents? Question mark. Is there a reason why you just defaulted to Dilaudid? Because that's not what our practice has agreed to, to do. And, and oftentimes it's, it's, you know, we have a partnership with where I'm at and they're my partners. And I trust that they'd hold me accountable if I was, you know, practicing below what we agreed on. And I try to hold them accountable. And thankfully, it's not very often I send these emails, but I do send them. People need to know when they're practicing outside what we've agreed upon. And I feel for the patient who is sort of the, you know, the unwitting passive victim of these yeah. epidemic and these changes of practice. Yeah. And quality of care really means consistency, right? Mm -hmm. We do the same things consistently to get good quality. And, you know, that's why I email my partners. Our second episode of this series does take a deep dive into the use of agents like ketamine and IV lidocaine, so please do listen to that if you haven't already. Let me run that renal colic case by you, and I'll put a little twist on it. It's a 52-year-old male who presents complaining of severe left flank pain, intermittent hematuria. He says he's had a history of stones before and renal colic. He's recently moved to the area. He can't remember the name of his previous providers, doesn't know how to access any of his records. He says that in previous visits, his pain has been managed with IV Dilaudid. He's been told he's had way too many CT scans in the past and really doesn't want any further imaging. Tell me how you manage him. So first of all, I think that all of us have seen patients like this or similar patients who will use renal colic, a true painful condition, as sometimes a way to try to shop for or try to get an opioid. I shouldn't say shop, but he might have an opioid use disorder, right? And, uh, and I'd want to identify that. And I'd want to use his visit as a chance to talk to him about treatment. If indeed he was there to try to get Dilaudid and try to get a prescription, I'd want to talk with him about the fact that I think he might have a larger problem and might need referral to an addiction specialist, of which, you know, we can provide. And I can put him on buprenorphine if at the end of the day he says, yes, I've, I've struggled with prescription drugs and, and I, I, I am in fact here because I'm trying to, you know, get allotted and get out of withdrawal, right? Is um, the conversation that easy? No, I it's wonder. not, right? It's not. But, <laughs> yeah. I, but I have a plan for it, right? I've conceptualized, you know, that and, and the fact that that would be my aspiration if I did identify you have a use disorder. It wouldn't be to say, screw you, I caught you, you sucker. You know, you're not getting anything from me. And uh, having the patient leave angry and having myself play the role of police officer or, or father figure, which I don't want to play, right? <laughs> but, but let's say for this patient, I'd say, great. I have a lot that I can offer this patient. Multimodal analgesia for kidney stones is one of our best proven multimodal pathways. This patient can get a dose of Toradol. They can get a dose of IV lidocaine. They can get a dose of Bentol. They can get a dose of Tylenol all at the same time, right? I order that all up front so that they get all those medications together. And that's really my initial thing for renal colic is they get all four of those drugs, a four drug cocktail. And I'll tell you, for most renal colic, they do amazing. I, I default to an opioid after that extremely rarely. Now, the other thing I would do is I'd, I'd say, hey, this is 100% legit that you don't want another CT scan. 
but I'm going to slap an ultrasound on you and I'm going to see if you have hydronephrosis. If you do, then it's much more likely you have a kidney stone, a large kidney stone. If you don't have any hydronephrosis or objective criteria that you have a kidney stone, then it may be less likely. And then, of course, just have some skepticism about urine with blood. There's been a lot of different people who will put little drops of blood in their urine to look like they have a kidney stone because they have hematuria. You know, but I, I'd be able to control this this patient's pain multimodally. I'd check the PDMP too. Mm-hmm. If the PDMP shows that he has a history, a concerning history of opioid use disorder, he wouldn't get any opioids from me. Mm-hmm. If it if it showed, if I did a search on our Rio, right, our health network that shows different hospitals, and this guy has been treated multiple times for kidney stones, and he has a more legitimate presentation to complain, and at the end of our cocktail, he doesn't feel better, then I would potentially give him a single dose of an opioid. So again, it's that type of getting in the muck to figure out exactly what this patient has, you know, be it a use disorder or be it kidney stones that are poorly controlled, that, that really you need to do, and just start multimodal. Most kidney stones don't need an opioid. And I would think that if this patient did have opioid use disorder, your initial offer of your typical non-opioid cocktail might itself be diagnostic. I mean, he may react to that as, no, 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 doc, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. And that just raises your suspicion, right? It doesn't mean you have a fight. It doesn't mean anything else. It just means, yeah, and, and I'd say, hey, listen, this is how we start all our patients here off when they have a kidney stone. If you're concerned about that, and I sense that the patient is you know, hyper-ramped up, hyper-vigilant, et cetera, I'll say, why don't I also treat you with some haloperidol or some cyprexa? Because that patient might benefit additionally from some sedation, right? He needs to calm down a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in addition because his anger is actually contributing to his pain. So so, so I do use antipsychotics for, for psychologic and emotional components of pain control. And I'll offer that. I'll say, hey, listen, I can give you something else, but it means you can't drive home. Mm-hmm. And what the patient interprets that often as, ooh, the good stuff. And I say, cyprexa. And they said, I've never had that. And I say, it's actually a pretty powerful pain control agent. So let's, I'll, hey, I'm happy to add that. Let's see where we're at. I'm going to go and we're going to do these studies. And if you're not feeling better after that, I'm happy to consider a dose of Dilaudid. And by that time, I can walk out of the room. I can educate myself on whether this patient has a use disorder or not. I can do my ultrasound. I can get my studies. And I can trust but verify. Right? And if, hey, this guy's got a nine millimeter stone in his distal UPJ that I can see on an ultrasound in a plane film, then this guy might get a dose of Dilaudid in an admission. So again, it's, it's giving that space for cognitive reasoning. I want to know more um, before I make a really definitive decision. And I love how you've transformed this from an adversarial, ha, you're busted, you're, you know, a scumbag to... This is just the differential diagnosis. Is this renal pathology or is this a use disorder? Yeah, and, and I'd say that's one of the most powerful things you're going to add to your career. Leave the judgment at home, right? And you're going to be able to empathize and care for people much more than you do. And you're not going to live your ER shift pissed off. You know, there's a famous saying that when you when you go in there with hate, hatred and you have these bad things, it's like drinking poison and asking the other person to die. Uh, you're still drinking the poison. <laughs> and you're a better doctor because you're treating all the diseases that yeah. come your way. And even if they leave and they don't get what they want, you know, and they call me call me all the types of names, I think they're not going to come back and, you know, try to beat me up in the parking lot, right? <laughs> Have you been beaten up in the parking lot? No. For no. your use of advanced analgesia. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are cases, though. I mean, you piss patients off, right? You know, if you get down in the mud and you wrestle with them and you resort to name-calling and all these things, I mean, there's all types of cases of physicians being assaulted, beaten, murdered. Really? Right? Wow, yeah. I did not know that. Over, over opioids. You do not want to go there. 
You know, you don't want that person to come back and with a vendetta against you. You want to be able to let people down gently, not only for your own sanity, but for your own safety. Let's pivot. A 92-year-old resident of a care unit at an assisted living, uh, late stage Alzheimer's disease, presents, she's tripped, fallen, a hip fracture, multiple rib fractures. What do you do? First of all, poor sweetie. Yeah. So, so, you know, first of all, 92-year-old dementia, we're not going to have an end-of-life conversation here, but definitely I'd bring that up and say, what are the goals of care with the family? Right. And then and the second, I'd really address her comfort, you know, whether it's it's, uh, you know, hey, this is more of a palliative situation or more or saying, hey, we're thinking of repairing this hip because, you know, grandma's got some dementia, but she's still enjoying life and smiles whenever the grandkids are around, et cetera. And, and you know, I think she's got a few more good years in her. So, you know, what I do for her for this type of this is the perfect patient where advanced analgesia is transformative, because if you go down the Dilaudid train route, let me tell you what's going to happen. That patient's going to develop delirium while they're in the hospital. They're going to develop constipation. They're going to have a prolonged stay because they're confused and out of it. And, and so oftentimes, you know, if they go home with a bunch of opioids, they're going to have another fall again. And uh, so often these are, these are, you know, the beginning of a downward spiral for this patient. I can do better, right? We can treat that patient upfront with something for pain. So if she has good kidneys, right, and she has, you know, and I've seen this in her medical record, if she has good kidneys, I'm going to give her an NSAID. If she, you know, I'm going to give her Tylenol. I'm going to give her possibly even a small dose of fentanyl if she can't breathe, et cetera, and, and get her more comfortable. And then I'm going to go in there with a needle and she is going to get definitive pain control. I'm going to do a fascia iliaca block or a ping block to take care of that hip. Or a hematoma block if I wanted to do it right off the bat and I can identify the fracture. When it comes to her rib fractures, if they're one-sided, that lady's going to get an erector spinae block. She's going to be able to breathe easy. If I'm in the center that has a catheter program or a good anesthesiologist, I'm going to say, hey, brother, I've got a great person for you that you can put a catheter in and, and really make this lady comfortable and prevent a lot of bad outcomes with her. And that's what the future is going to look like, guys. That's what that's what the future we should be fighting for is, is a good regional analgesia for this patient. If you can put a catheter in, and that's something we're going to build toward with advanced analgesia and give that patient definitive pain control for the next few days of her hospital stay, you should do it, right? That's what, that's what I think the future is going to look like of emergency medicine and emergency pain control. Let's look at a younger patient now. 28-year-old woman comes to you. She's got a terrible headache, tension headache, real neck pain. She's been cleaning out a crawl space all weekend, crouched down, and is pretty miserable. She's 12 weeks pregnant, but otherwise a healthy healthy 28-year-old. So pregnancy, that's the big curveball here, right? Yeah. There's so many things in pregnancy that you can't choose. And I'll tell you, I am such a huge fan of targeted local anesthetics in these patients. It's not even funny. I've done some pretty outrageous things for pregnant patients, and I'll describe them here in a bit. But for this patient in particular, if she has a component of pain that's a tension headache, where I push on her neck, it hurts. I push on her trapezius, it hurts. I push on her occipital nerve, and it hurts. This patient is going to get a dose of Tylenol, and I'm going to go in, and I'm going to do some trigger point injections on her. I'm going to find all those places that hurt, and I'm going to give her good analgesia. And I usually am able to break her, her migraine cycle, right? And I've had all types of patients with this, with musculoskeletal pains, because suddenly you're lugging around an extra, you know, 30 pounds for a baby, that, that I like to go in and provide 
provide localized analgesia. So the, the funniest one was that a patient who was sent down by my OB because they're having terrible, you know, pubic symphysis pain. And, you know, literally it's because her pubic symphysis, because of relaxin, was being torn apart by her baby, right? And I talked with the OB and she was miserable, hadn't slept in days. And I said, is it okay if I give her some bupivacaine in that area? And they said, uh, yeah, I think that'd be fine. And I put 15 cc's of bupivacaine right out the patient's pubic symphysis. And when I walked back in the room, the patient was asleep, <laughs> right? I mean, and, and I've done that for two, you know, a gentleman who tore, this is a gentleman who tore his, uh, his pectoral muscle. I just injected the pectoral muscle and got them pain relief. Again, regional advanced analgesia means using your fingers. It's kinetic. It means pushing on where it hurts and numbing that area up. It makes all types of sense. Our third episode discusses this in real detail, but just for listeners who are dropping in now, talk to me a bit about the volumes and doses you're using. How do you know 15 cc's for a pubic symphysis injection? Go big. How go, big? Go yeah, big. Tell, no, let's, big. Let's use, yeah. Let's use back pain because I think that's really the, the thing that most ER docs are familiar with. When I hear people fail trigger point injections, they do it, you know, of the back it's because of several reasons. One, it's because they didn't have pain exacerbated by palpation. So go in there, push on the patient's back. I guarantee you, most of your back pain patients in the ER have a muscular component of their back pain. When you push on the SI joint, they're going to say, ow. Or when you push on the perilumbar area or the medial glute, they're going to say, ow. And those are perfect patients to go in there and numb. Now, how much should you use? There's an upper limit to how much bupivacaine you should give, right? And it's around, you know, three mg per kg would be, would be a conservative one. So you can give a hell of a lot of bupivacaine. And when patients come in with back pain, I try to empty at least 20 mLs of 0.25% bupivacaine into their back. And, and they just get better pain control with that. The same thing, and Rob talked a little bit about this with regional analgesia. If you're doing a plain block, use a large volume. You might not use all the anesthetic, but use a large volume to make sure that it diffuses out into all the right areas. I am generous with, with my blocks. If I have even a laceration and I'm doing regional analgesia, so let's say the face, because I'll make a welt in the patient's face, you know, where that nerve is so that they get good pain control. Don't be stingy, people. Give them good pain control by giving them lots of anesthetic. So after you've given your first high, large volume injection, you wait how long? So my favorite, yeah. my favorite thing to do for lumbar pain is, you know, usually people get 20 mLs in their back and I'll inject around four to six sites, depending how many I can find with my finger. And I almost always eject the SI joint because that's, you know, even if they don't have pain there, I find that's extremely high yield. Um, but, but what I do is I push on a plate, they go, ow, 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 I inject them. And by the time I do my last injection, I say, how does it, does it hurt here? We've got maybe one more when, before I give my last one. And I'll push on my original site of injection, the first one I did. And so many times the patient will say, no, it doesn't hurt there. And what I'll tell them is, that was the first place we injected you. And it, got, it kind of primes them. This is working already. Mm -hmm. But then what I'll tell them is, hey, listen, you've had some relief now. In 20 minutes, this is all going to soak in, and you're going to have much better pain relief. And I'll come back and check on you. And I cannot tell you how many patients I've had with low back pain who have bounced back, and my partners didn't do a proper trigger point injection or didn't even try one. And I do a trigger point injection and just discharge them within an hour. Or my PA comes up and says, we've tried all these things. This person's not hurting. This person's going to need to be admitted. And I'll say, well, let's go back and examine them together. And I'll push and they just have diffuse back pain. But I say, hey, just tell me where it really hurts the most. And we'll map their trigger points from the four to six most, most painful areas and I'll inject them. 
with a lot of great pain relief. Trigger points really are magic sauce when it comes to back pain. And when it comes to complex head headaches, they're my rescue or my first line for so many types of headache phenomenons, just like this patient had. So for this patient, headache, sort of a hard to localize all over headache, where do you inject? So it gets cervical. Uh, so cervical trigger point injections around the C5 area. They'll get uh, sometimes trapezius injections if they hurt down there. And then if they have pain, when I push on their occipital nerve, I'll do occipital nerve injections. Now for this patient who doesn't really have a lot of other options to get really good pain control, I'll oftentimes do at least trigger point injections and occipital nerve blocks for her. Terrific. Thank you. Let's talk about a morbidly obese man, a 400-pound male who presents with an angulated humeral fracture, slipped and fell getting out of the shower. He is in chronic hypoxic respiratory failure. He's on CPAP at night, and he is clearly miserable. Yeah. So, so again, this is the person for whom regional analgesia is life-saving and definitive. So I might start off, by the way, if I can see his fracture and I can see that bone and he goes, it's right here, doc, I might go and try to do a hematoma block at first. In the first five minutes he's there, I might, you know, and I I, I always do this with my nurses. It's like, I walk in, there's a fracture. It's like everyone and their mother looks at this person's bone and says, ooh, that's broken. I'll tell my nurse, hey, go get me 20 mLs of lidocaine. And, I'll, and they'll come back. And I'll immediately, before I leave the room, I'm talking with them. Hey, how did you fall? How did blah, 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 blah. And I'm asking, I'm getting my history. I'm getting all the stuff that I need. And then as soon as my nurse has that lidocaine with me, I'm pulling up 20 cc's of lidocaine. And then I'm saying, hey, listen, I can really start getting you out of pain in the next five minutes if I inject where you're broken. And most patients with fracture pain are happy as hell to be injected for the fracture. And for the humerus, you just find that humeral fracture. If you want to use ultrasound, you can. And if you're on the kind of external part of the arm, there's no nerves or anything there. It's very safe to do. So I just do a hematoma block. Now, that hematoma block gives me breathing space because now that patient might be more comfortable. We can get their x-rays. The patient's not screaming during them. You know, they can get multimodal pain control, Tylenol, an NSAID, right? Things that aren't depressing their respiratory drive. If they're really in bad respiratory status, I would stay away from an opioid because I don't want to have to put that person on a bunch of stuff and drive down the respiratory rate, they would get pain dose ketamine, right? That's not going to have a respiratory effect. Again, we're using our brains, which is what advanced analgesia tells you to do. And then the next thing that person would get from me, if they have a proximal humeral fracture, is I would do an injection in their neck and they'd get a some type of supraclavicular nerve block, whether that's a scalene nerve block, whether, you know, that's, that's, that's another block that's going to take care of their pain more long term. And this is the patient too, that you might not send home. If they have a, you know, humerus fracture that looks like it needs surgery, and of course these are more rare, I might talk with my, with my orthopedist about doing that. If they do go home, this is a perfect person who gets a catheter, right, for the first few days while they're in their most acute pain. And if you have an acute pain service, that's, that's perfect reason to get them involved or to set them up, you know, the next day. So at a pain clinic yeah. with a pain. If if they pain if you have those resources, that's what you should do. And if not, and you need to default to an opioid, you know, to go home, I make sure this person has a kick-ass support system around him, right? Uh, that they're watching his oxygen, that they've got Narcan for home, uh, and that you inform the patient, I'm going to want you to try to get by on Tylenol, Motrin, you know, multimodal analgesia. And if you can't take this, but you have to be super cautious with taking opioids in that type of patient. And have naloxone at home. Yeah, have naloxone yeah. at home, right? You want to parachute for them in case they, 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 they fall and burn. 21-year-old yeah. <laughs> college student presents with cannabis hyperemesis. He's writhing in pain, retching loudly, says normally hot showers 
work for him but hasn't worked for this presentation, how do you help him? So, so first of all, you should recognize that these things are problems of gut neurology, right? These functional abdominal pains, be them cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, abdominal migraine, uh, cyclic vomiting syndrome, are problems with the gut's neurons. And, and I always tell patients, hey, you have as many neurons in your intestines as you have in your spinal cord. This is a really high, you know, highly innervated area. And the best thing for these patients is an anti-dopaminergic agent. We know that dopamine has a significant role along with serotonin in being pro-emetic. And when you give dopamine blockers to these patients, they do amazing. Give them Haldol. Or my favorite now is not Haldol. I like a Lanzapine. I view a Lanzapine for two reasons. One, you don't get as much dystonia and antiperimental side effects. And then two, there's an awesome ODT Zyprexa I can send the patient home with. So here's my cocktail for those patients. They get a line. They get five of IV Zyprexa. If they're willing and they get relief from hot showers, we rub capsaicin on their belly and they get IV lidocaine because again, it's a neuropathic issue. IV lidocaine, in my experience, helps with these chronic functional abdominal pains that are neuropathic in nature. And, and, and usually I'm able to get good relief. Now, another component with these patients is sedation. Sedation is extremely helpful for them. And so many times, you know, we joke about it in the ER. We just need to hit the re- reset button, right? They need a, they need a really great nap and they'll wake up better. And it's true for these patients. Sometimes if you're able to give them, let's say, anapsine, which is much shorter acting than haloperidol, you can give them a dose of anapsine, you can hydrate them over the course of, of two or three hours, they'll wake up feeling better. And then you actually have, here's why Zyprexa is so key, you actually have tools for them to control this at home. You know, they can go home with Zyprexa and capsaicin and usually be able to fend off a lot of these exacerbations of their cyclic vomiting or cannabis hyperemesis. And then finally, you got to get down on the patient's level, right? This person has CUD, which CUD, if they have cannabis, cannabis hyperemesis, it means cannabis use disorder. We need to start addressing that and, and telling patients that, hey, we really need to quit cannabis and marijuana if you really want a long-term improvement. Finally, with these patients, and I'm a little bit, I guess, atypical in this, is if they do have a non-cannabinoid issue with with chronic abdominal pain, Cymbalta has been shown to decrease exacerbations of this. And I will oftentimes start patients on Cymbalta and try to communicate with their primary care doctor that that's what I'm doing. Cymbalta and amitriptyline have great evidence for these types of functional pain syndromes. And the patient shouldn't have to wait till they see a specialist for us to do what's in the medical literature, right? Yeah, I I missed the beginning of that thought. You said if they have a not cannabis use disorder related yeah. functional abdominal pain. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because cannabis use disorder, here's at least how I think of it conceptually, is the problem is they have all these deviations in their neurobiology because there's too much THC agonism, right? So really what they need to do is stop doing cannabis so that their intestines can say, oh, wow, there's no no longer all this THC around. We should get back to normal neurologic functioning. And that sometimes takes months, especially because cannabis is so lipophilic that it's stored in fat and takes a long time to get it all out of your system so that your neurobiology can, can recover. Mm-hmm. 35-year-old male. He's got partial thickness burns to both hands and a part of his face, about 10% of his total surface area. He gets a monthly injection of Vivitrol for opioid use disorder. He is in severe pain. What do you do? This is a great case. So so these burns, you know, burns are extremely, extremely painful, especially partial thickness burns. And this gentleman also has the confounding thing that he's on Vivitrol. Thank God for multimodal analgesia, right? You can do a lot for this patient's pain. 
first for his hands, you know, if he if he does have hands just to a palm and below, you can do bilateral hand blocks and get this guy amazing relief. And then you can use a topical on his face. You can do topical lidocaine or you can do regional analgesia. So the first thing I would be thinking about is how do I do regional analgesia for this guy? Now, sometimes there's just too much burn. You can't numb everything. You're going to get into a toxic level of local anesthetic because the burns are too diffuse. Then I'd go multimodal. If you're not going to go down the, you know, regional analgesia pathway, multimodal pathway is what this guy needs. And he might be put on a ketamine drip by me because you can't use opioids and Vivitrol unless you really want to go big, 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 right? So he'd oftentimes be put on a ketamine drip or get doses of ketamine. I'd go multimodal, right? So you're giving them Tylenol, you're giving them ibuprofen, you're icing those areas so they have less pain, right? Uh, and then ketamine would be one of the heavy ones I'd lean on, as well as uh, trying to get some regional analgesia. I'm struck, among other things, by the fact that you're still using Tylenol and NSAIDs for this patient. I mean, I think there's a tendency to say, this is severe pain, forget those, they're not going to touch it. Yeah. And what I'd say to people is you do the basics first, right? Don't think that because someone has quote unquote severe pain, that it just means you can put them on the Dilaudid train. That's one of the biggest mistakes in medicine. And so oftentimes patients get significant relief from Tylenol and, and, and NSAID. It's one of our most powerful, safest combinations. Don't forget about it. I, I give them as part of almost, unless there's counterindications that someone has renal disease, severe heart disease, and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe an NSAID is going to do more harm than good. I almost put everyone else on Tylenol and Motrin as my first steps. And here's the other thing it does that that's powerful. If that patient goes home, it is validated the fact that Tylenol and Motrin are effective. If they have some good pain relief in the emergency department, I can say two of the things that we used that were most important was Tylenol and Motrin here. And you're going to go home and you're going to be on those medications, plus whatever else I prescribe based on their physiology, bentol, you know, a muscle relaxant, you know, lidocaine, et cetera, right? I've got all these tools and every patient is a challenge that I can apply my knowledge to their pathophysiology and we can get really good pain control. I'd like to end with a case that is not one that I jotted on the back of a napkin. This is a real case that you told me about a couple days ago. Could you describe the case of the patient you saw recently with widely metastatic pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so, so this was a sad case, first of all. It was a young guy with a young family, a wife and a, and a little kid. And he had been dealing with pancreatic cancer and was at the stage where he is, you know, he was losing the war. And, and he was going to die from, from his cancer. And he had been on mega, mega doses of opioids, you know, oxycotton with oxycodone for breakthrough and a fentanyl patch. I mean, this guy, and every type of opioid was probably in his system. And uh, so he came in and he was just in terrible cancer pain. And I kind of talked with him and I said, okay, well, have you ever had ketamine? And he said, no. So I said, okay, great. We're going to get you your first dose of pain dose ketamine. We're going to give you, you know, and again, I gave him Tylenol and Motrin, right? And ketamine, but ketamine was really the important one here. And uh, I walked out of the room. I saw two more patients. I came back to just see how the guy was doing and he was crying and his wife was crying and his wife ran up and hugged me. You know, well, first when I saw him crying, I went, oh shit, Don, you've done it. Like this guy's, you know, in the K-hole, <laughs> you know, his wife is going to be upset with you. You know, he's going to be pissed because you gave this dying man a bad trip. But the reason why his wife hugged me and what he told me was this is the first time he's not experienced pain within the last few years, right? Every day he's, he's woken up and there's been pain. It's been his companion. And, uh, and because we decided to do things differently, at least for a period of time, this gentleman who has central sensitization from chronic opioid therapy and opioid-induced hyperesthesia had no pain for a few hours. And what a blessing that was for him and his family. 
right? And it just goes to show you what you can do for patients, how you can benefit them. If you adopt some of these principles and an advanced analgesia mindset to your practice in the ED, you can perform miracles when it comes to pain control. And, and that young man and his wife were a great example of that. Such an inspiring case. Thank you so much. I think that as this podcast series continues, it would be really wonderful to have more real cases from real practicing emergency physicians. So if you are out there listening and have an interesting or particularly challenging case, we would love to hear from you. Don, how how do people get in touch with you at Advanced Analgesia for the ED? So thank you, Elizabeth, and we'd love to hear real cases and do real problem solving with you, our listeners, and ER docs. We have a website, advancedanalgesia.com, and on that, there's a website submission form. Just put in the title podcast, type out your problem, send it off to us, and we will respond and try to brainstorm with you and maybe even invite you on the show to present your case and how we can resolve it. I would just love to see a call-in show. I think that could be pretty awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what we'll have call in Fridays or something, you know. So, we'll see. You know, this is what's so exciting is this is really a project and a concept that's at its infancy, but we think it has real potential to do a lot of good for our patients and uh, and for our communities. Lastly, I'd like to end this by by thanking our partners in this. Because of our partnership with Cheyenne Regional Medical Center, they're the ones who provided the grant that, that's paid for this podcast and really helped spur us to create this full program as an evolution to the ALTA program we used to practice. So, so thank you so much to Cheyenne Regional Medical Center.